Dear fellow redeemed, we consider especially the first few verses of our second reading from 1 Peter chapter 4. And if there's anybody in this life who shouldn't be shocked or surprised, it ought to be Christians. Peter writes that way. Dear friends, I don't want you to be surprised about this, as if it were something foreigner, something strange, something um, out of sorts, something unexpected. If there's anybody who ought not be surprised, I think it would be Christians. Because everybody else, everybody else can have their hope. They can have their hope that if finally we have the right policy, the right politician, the right ideas, the right culture, the right society, then we will have improvement. Then we will have success. But Christians, we look back at the bare words of Scripture, and we see the same truth replayed generation after generation, that every inclination of man's heart is only always ever evil all the time. And so Christians aren't surprised, and rather ought not be surprised, that is, when we see sinful people doing sinful things. Whether it's on large scale, like we see in the pages of our history books, or that are conveniently swept into the dustbin of history because it was the wrong people doing the evil, or whether it's just in our everyday lives, that we ought not be surprised. But Peter's saying more than that. He's not just saying that we shouldn't be surprised about the evil that happens in this world, or even more precisely, it doesn't just happen, the evil that sinful people perpetrate. He says, don't be surprised that by the fiery trial that is happening among you to test you, as if something strange were happening to you. There's two elements there. Don't be surprised. Well, that's the, the normal default setting of the Christian where we can have an understanding of history and we have an understanding of human nature dating back throughout all of history. Don't be surprised by the fiery trial that is happening to test you. The testing. And then don't be surprised as if something strange were happening to you. And maybe we'll start with that. The people that Peter is writing to are people who are living as strangers in this world. They are living as foreigners in a strange land. And not because they weren't citizens of the empire, but simply because their heart belonged to another, to King Jesus. And so does yours. That your heart and your citizenship is in heaven, that your life is bound up with his, that your hope is found not in the hopes that the world will peddle for profit, but in the hope of Jesus risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and ruling all things at the right hand of the throne of God. That your hope is not simply that Jesus ascended visibly and bodily, but that this same Jesus is present among his people exactly as he promised, wherever two or three gather together. He is present among his people exactly as he promised when he says, Take and eat, this is my body and this is my blood. And where he is, there he is present to bless his people. That the very thing Jesus prayed for in his high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, a portion of which we read today, 
The very thing Jesus prayed for when he prayed for you, as somebody who lives in this world, as a stranger in this world, is a prayer that he himself answers as he joins his people, as he, um, as he blesses his people, as he is present among his people with all of his gifts and all of his blessing, all of his goodness and righteousness and holiness, with all of his grace, all of his forgiveness, to say, dear Christian, dear Christian, you are not missing out because you are a stranger in this world. Don't be surprised as if something strange were happening to you. It's like the default setting of the Christian mind. The mindset that we ought to have isn't just that evil people do evil things, that sinful people do sinful things, and that's the story of history. But also, even more personally than that, as people who follow along behind the steps of Jesus, it's even more personal than that, that we can expect suffering as a consequence not suffering as though you or I would be completing um, his atoning work. Not suffering as though you or I would be paying for our own sin. But suffering because the cross which marked his life and his earthly ministry is the same cross that marks yours. And that's why Jesus has to reiterate numerous times that he is among his people to bless his people. And that the suffering, whatever it is that Christians may experience, it isn't as though God were looking the other way. Whoops, I slipped up on that one. Well, he'll be all right. Quite to the contrary. That any suffering that a Christian experiences is something that God has had in mind and wants to bless the Christian through that. Perhaps as the Christian is led to, um, to trust less in what they see and can measure and can count, and to trust more in the promises of God, the only promises that will sustain in life and death. Perhaps. But Peter says, number one, don't be surprised. Obviously we're not. But don't be surprised as if something strange were happening to you, that whatever suffering it may be, it is something that God has had in mind for you. Yes, to purify your life, perhaps to, um, to demonstrate for your, your own self exactly where your trust lies, because it is happening to test you, to test you. Oh, boy. And so we, we get to that, just that very first verse, and we hear about this suffering that is happening to test you. And you're like, all right, Pastor, if it's a test, I remember tests in school, and they handed me the paper, and it was nerve-wracking, and it was horrible, and I don't want to do that anymore. And besides, what suffering could I have? Maybe that's the actual question. Because we aren't living in a time and a place of overt persecution. We aren't living in a time and a place where Christian churches are being torn down. Like about um, 15 years ago in Indonesia, where our, our church there had finally gotten permission from all of their neighbors to build a small cinder block pavilion where they could have a table and a cross and worship services. And, um, and they started holding worship 
And then it took all of two hours for the men of the neighborhood to bring their sledgehammers, even though the police station was only 10 minutes away. That's not happening here. And so the big question, well, what suffering is there? Maybe if we dial it back from overt suffering and destruction of Christian churches to the discipline of the Christian life. That might get us into exactly what Peter is talking about with some application for you and for me. Talking about the the discipline of the Christian life, that to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus, means to, um, to be conformed to his shape and to his image. And that the Christian life isn't something that we simply take for granted as if it is simply caught by lifestyle. And as if somebody simply is a Christian by their outward action. But that the discipline of the Christian life has the perception to say, where is the sin within my own heart? Where is the sin within my own heart? The discipline of the Christian life says, you know what, even though it's summertime and even though the schedule at church changes a little bit, um, I still need to spend time with my Jesus. Not so that I have, uh, you know, the best attendance record, but simply because I need him. Because that is where he promises to be. Talking about the, the discipline of the Christian life, where we look at what we sing and what we recite, and it isn't simply going through one ear and out the other, but it is something that we take to heart. Talking about the discipline of the Christian life, because what Peter says here, don't be surprised at the fiery trial you are experiencing as if it were something strange happening to you. He's talking about just a difference in degree. (laughs) That the suffering that those Christians were experiencing, if you were, it's not something that we are experiencing, but to a lesser degree, that same sort of struggle is here for every Christian. It's the internal struggle where you know um, the words want to tumble out and you want to win your argument. Because you felt wronged. Where the words want to tumble out and I need to make that other person feel exactly the way that I felt. The discipline of the Christian life. That says, well, I ought to take stock of what I say. And, um, and the Apostle James, he calls the tongue a, a fire that can set the whole body ablaze. Well, <laughs> Strong. Talking about the discipline of the Christian life, of, um, of actually taking the time to verbalize what do I believe and why. Of talking to my loved ones, whether those who are within my own household or those who are in a somewhat extended household, that if I were to pass away, this is what I believe and this is what I want. And my wishes, let me verbalize it to you now, is that we have a funeral or we have a memorial service in church So that you can hear one last time, when you need it most, that this Jesus matters more than anything else that this life could hold. The discipline of the Christian life. That looks at what what Peter says here in 1 Peter and says, okay, we're not in that that sort of persecution. God be praised. That that is not our circumstance right now. That God hasn't called you or me to suffer in the same way as those first century Christians did. But that if and when that time comes, Lord, give me the willingness 
to, to suffer for your name. Lord, give me the willingness to spend the time with my family now so that they can know where I stand. So that, so that my kids can know that this Jesus promises an eternity in heaven that goes beyond anything that this life can offer here. 70 or 80 years if I have the strength versus eternity. And so Peter writes, because he doesn't want us to be deluded, to be caught unawares. He doesn't want us to throw up our hands and say, well, I never knew, I never expected it, it wasn't part of my history um, to suffer for the name of Jesus. But it's in that suffering, it's in that internal struggle, it's in that discipline of the Christian life that we begin to see more clearly the sinful flesh exactly where it lurks. And we begin to see that even, even our best efforts aren't perfect. And it's only, it's only when we get to that point of, of suffering or even you know, personal discipline of whatever, whatever fashion it takes that we begin to see that this Jesus thing isn't just a recitation of facts and an exchange of greetings. But that this Jesus means life. That the Jesus who is so concerned for you and for me that he went to the cross is the same Jesus who had the foresight to pray for you before he went to that cross. The same Jesus who said, Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, I am leaving them in this world. I am coming to you. Not that he wouldn't be with his people, but that he wouldn't be visible with his people. Jesus says in his high priestly prayer there from John chapter 17 that he is going to heaven. That he won't be visibly active among his people to protect them from, from the schemes of the devil. To protect them from external attack. And so he prays. And he prays for you. And he prays for me. So that we Christians would have this truth most firmly planted in our hearts. That we are strangers in this world, not because of our own action or our culture or um, any of those externals, but we are strangers because Jesus himself is the one who entered this world to make you his own. That Jesus himself is the one who, who shared in our suffering and even more. He took on our sin to make you his own. That Jesus himself is the one who went through the valley of the shadow of death, whose life was marked with the shadow of the cross, so that you and I would know that at one point, eventually, you or I would have the forgiveness of sins as our own personal possession and the ticket to heaven stamped and placed in our hearts. And so Peter writes... Peter writes, Dear friends, I don't want you to be surprised by the fiery trial that is happening among you to test you. Well, yeah, obviously Christians are never surprised by any suffering of any sort. At least we ought not to be. And if we are, well, we should take a closer look at what Scripture has to say and perhaps what human history has had to write. We aren't surprised by these things, that evil people do evil things. But what is surprising is that the devil's target is on your back and mine. And that if he can't bring you away from the Lord's means of grace, 
then he will do his best to bring the means of grace away from you and me. To steal away the word that is planted in the heart. To, to encourage Christians to bicker and argue with one another so that there's division among God's people. That the devil will do his best to delude you into thinking that this world and um, all the cares and concerns and the worries that you have today and tomorrow, that they loom so large in your vision that you'll get to the Jesus stuff when it, when it matters, but not today. And that's where Peter flips it on its head. That you and I aren't to the point of, of suffering. We don't have um, an emperor demanding that we offer him sacrifices in worship. We don't have an emperor commanding his legions to um, come and deconstruct our buildings, at least not in this part of the world right now. We don't have those things. But let us not be caught unawares as if the discipline of paying attention to my Christian life is something that I don't need to worry about. That we don't worry about the suffering right now, at least not over persecution as we see at other times and places in history. But let's take up the discipline of the Christian life so that God can continue to build Christians. So that God can bring his cross prominently into your life and into your eyes. And so that Jesus himself can plant this truth more firmly as your own personal possession not simply as what your parents and grandparents believe, but as what you believe. One thing that we offer um, to hopefully help with that, as one part of our comprehensive um, spiritual education program, <laughs> I talk about that in my report. It's um, out on the table out there on the way out. But one of the things that we offer is a preview of next Sunday's service. It's, it's rather short. On the front page, it has, you know, what are the readings? Where are we at in the church here? Here's a little bit of an introduction on what the reading entails. Um, and then on the backside, a brief order of worship. You know, you read through the Creed, the Lord's Prayer, um, one of the readings. Not much. But it's in simple practices like that. Simple time with the Word of God where the Holy Spirit himself strengthens the faith that he has created and reminds you, dear Christian, that this is who you are. It's in the simple, simple words of Scripture where Jesus feeds you with his daily bread. It's in the simple words of Scripture that hopefully help to prepare you for the following week. And you can say, oh, I understand what this Sunday is about. I understand why we celebrate this. Because... Not simply because it's going to be Pentecost next Sunday and then the season's after Pentecost for like three and a half months. But because we are strangers here. Because your citizenship is elsewhere. And because Peter writes, you know, dear friends, don't be surprised when and if that fiery trial comes as if something strange were happening to you. But instead, take up the daily discipline of the Christian life so that this Jesus can continue to build his church in your heart too. Amen.